Now let's turn in our Bibles to the 27th book, uh, chapter of the book of Matthew, verse 62, and we will read through that chapter, through chapter 28 to the end. Let us pray. Our Father, as we turn to this text now, we pray that Jesus' resurrection, the truth and reality that our Savior is alive, will grip our hearts, that lost people will be one to the faith, and that your people will be built up in the most holy faith, and that we will desire to see the risen Christ at work within our hearts and lives as we anticipate that day in which Jesus will come again. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 27, beginning with verse 62. This is the word of God. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene And the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is an historical fact. We are not saying that he rose simply in spirit. We are not saying that he rose only in the witness and proclamation of the church. What the New Testament teaches and we proclaim is that the same body that was laid in the tomb came out of the tomb. The same body that was placed in the grave rose from the dead and came out of the grave. So that your Lord Jesus Christ possesses a glorified body, but a physical, real, tangible body. And Jesus staked all of his claims upon the resurrection on the third day. There is no Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we have a magnificent account here in Matthew. What we want to do this morning is simply follow the order that we have in this section of Scripture. The first thing we see is the tightly sealed tomb. The tightly sealed tomb. Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus in his tomb that had been prepared for the eventuality of his own death. Now remember, as we said last week, the sort of tomb presupposed in Matthew is an expensive tomb with an antechamber that led into the burial chamber that would have been sealed with a cut disc-shaped stone that would slide into place at an angle, really hard to open. The tomb also was guarded. The chief priests and Pharisees approached Pilate. They were afraid of a fraudulent claim to resurrection that the disciples would take the body and claim that Jesus rose from the dead. They needn't have feared this, of course. The disciples at this point have no category for a crucified and risen Messiah. They are depressed. They are dejected. They are utterly confused at this point. And in verse 65, we read, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. Now, there's some question of the translation. The translation could be an imperative, take a guard, in which case the Roman soldiers are placed there. Or it can be an indicative, you have a guard, meaning the temple guard. In either case, whether Roman guards or whether the temple guard, Pilate said, you may seal the tomb. And you also may apply the official Roman wax seal to the tomb. So we read in verse 66, So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. But the Romans could not keep their prey. The Jews could not keep their prey. And death could not keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior. So that the second thing we see as we move in the narrative is the tomb is empty. Do you hear me? The tomb is empty. After the Sabbath, early on the first day of the week, the two Marys and others, according to Mark and Luke, went to the tomb. This was Sunday morning. The expression three days and three nights needn't refer to three 24-hour periods. A day and a night was a colloquial expression that could refer to any part of a day. There had been an earthquake that had been witnessed by the guard, and they saw the angel and became like dead men, the text tells us. Indeed, that's the same root when, they, when these guards are shaken. It's the same root of the word in verse 2 that means earthquake. They were really shaken. 
they became like dead men. And the stone was rolled back and the seal was broken to let the first witnesses in, the women. Not to let Jesus out, he didn't need anyone to do that. But to let the first witnesses in, these women who came to the tomb. The soldiers would later lie about what took place, as we will see. The angel calms their fears and tells them what has taken place. And we have two of the most stellar verses in the New Testament, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 28. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. The empty tomb still speaks comfort and assurance to believing hearts. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. You know, John in his gospel tells us, by the way, that another angel joined the women in the tomb, one at the head and one at the foot of where he had been, perhaps reminding us of the two great cherubim that overlooked the mercy seat because the act of atonement has taken place in the cross. And so in verses 5 and 6, come, see, come, see, there is an appeal to the senses. See for yourself this empty tomb. Look where he lay. You can see it for yourself. Just go in and see. Just as with Thomas, there was an appeal to the senses in John's gospel when he had doubted the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and our Lord Jesus comes to him and he says, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. See the place where he lay. See he is not here, he is risen. And John also tells us that when Peter and John arrived at the empty tomb, the linen cloths were lying there and the face cloth folded in a place by itself. You see, there is this constant emphasis in all of the gospel narratives, including Matthew, upon the senses, come and see. He rose, that's history. This is not myth, this is history. Now there are questions that come up in history. Sometimes we wonder, is something historical or is it not? And some of them really don't mean a great deal. Did George Washington really cut down the cherry tree? I'm not going to lose sleep over the question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? My friend, everything is staked on that question, upon that reality. But listen, the sinner outside of Christ is not looking at this neutrally. We are by nature estranged from God. We are rebellious. And only the Holy Spirit can change our implacable hearts to see the truth. But note this also in verse 6. Come and see the place where he lay. We are told he is risen as he said. As he said. When had Jesus said this? Well, on one occasion he said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so... I will go into the grave and will be raised on the third day. In another place, he said, destroy this temple, referring to the temple of his body, and in three days I will rise again, raise it again. In Matthew chapter 16, in Matthew chapter 17, in Matthew chapter 20, three times he has told his unbelieving disciples that he would rise from the dead. 
And now we come to this passage, and the angel said, Hey, disciples, isn't that what he told you? It's just as he said. This is his word. His word is sure, people of God. His word of grace cannot fail. And that same Christ has given us the word of his promise that since he rose from the dead, the Christian dead will rise in glorified bodies as well. No tomb is strong enough to hold the bodies of believers when the trumpet blows. When Jesus comes again, the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. His word is sure. Come and see the place where he lay. He is risen as he said. His word to us, this word he has given to us, is trustworthy and reliable. You can bank upon his promises. So he rose. Because his work was finished. Had his work not been complete on the cross, he would have remained in the tomb sealed behind the stone and you and I would be lost for eternity. No believer has any reason to fear as we look toward our own death because the debt has been paid in full and the evidence of it, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. If that does not thrill the Christian's heart, what will? The tomb is empty, not because someone stole his body, but because he rose from the dead. The third thing we see as we move in the text is the women encounter the risen Lord. In verse 7, the angel says, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so Jesus is going ahead. He will meet his disciples in Galilee. And imagine the joy of these women that take the news of Jesus' resurrection to his disciples. Question. Let me ask you. Why do we not retain such thrill over the resurrection that we cannot help but proclaim it? Why do we not retain such thrill over the truth that he has risen from the dead that we cannot help but live accordingly and to tell others about him? In verse 8 we read, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, those two great emotions that should control, control our approach to these texts. Joy and reverent fear before the Lord. And they ran to tell his disciples. But as they are running to meet the disciples, suddenly Jesus met these women. He greeted them. The women clasped his feet and worshipped him. Now you will remember that in the ancient world, the witness of women was considered worthless. But the New Testament is a thoroughly true and reliable account and includes these important facts even though those reading it in the first century A.D., some of them would discount the account because of that reality. He calms their fears. And in verse 10, the Lord Jesus says, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, the reference to my brothers is probably not only the disciples, but to a full range of believers. And this gathering in Galilee may well be the over 500 brothers who saw the Lord Jesus at once, spoken of by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. There were other appearances before the disciples returned to Galilee, but Matthew does not mention those other appearances. 
he only mentions that his disciples will go to Galilee, and there they will be met by Jesus. Why? Why doesn't he tell about the other meetings? Why does he only emphasize the meeting in Galilee? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. Do you remember all the way back there in the second chapter of Matthew, that when the Lord Jesus Christ would have been sought by Herod, and there was the slaughter of the innocents, that the Lord Jesus Christ was taken by Joseph and Mary to Egypt. And after the death of Herod, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was brought back. And we read in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, that when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Where did Jesus say he would meet his disciples? In Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets, that by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Jesus came not in the great way of human kings, but in utter humility and to those people in places despised by the world. Galilee, a despised place in the world. But as we go on in Matthew in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we read something else. Beginning in verse 013 of chapter 4 of Matthew, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so he ministers and works in Galilee. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. Because in Galilee, there were many Gentiles. In Galilee, the nations were to be seen. And there is, in this most Jewish of the Gospels, Matthew... There is this growing theme in Matthew. This gospel of the crucified and risen Christ will not be limited to Israel, but will be proclaimed to the nations. And now he tells his disciples he will meet them in Galilee. And what will follow is the great commission to go into the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples of all the nations. What is he saying by limiting Matthew, by limiting the account to Galilee, he is saying this. He is saying this astounding commission to take the gospel to the nations is now fulfilled as has been unfolded all the way through Matthew so that the news of its resurrection is not simply to be preached to Jews, but is to be preached to Gentiles. You say, well, what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with you because you are the Gentiles for whom it was intended. You are the ones to whom this great good news of the resurrection of Jesus was to be preached. The fourth thing we see in Matthew 28, denials of Jesus' resurrection. Look again at verses 11 and following. 
While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. That is to say, the earthquake, the stone rolled away, the seal that was broken. They report that to the chief priests. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So here is this old origin of the theory of the stolen corpse of Jesus. The guards reported to the chief priests, probably the temple police, they were bribed, and they were said to say the disciples came and stole the body. So the stolen corpse that Jesus... Disciples, exhausted, weary, dejected, depressed, stole the body, and then turned around and preached powerfully the gospel to the Jewish and Roman cultures, taking beatings and even death for their thanks. All for a lie. This strange credulity, and is contrary to all of the data that is given to us in the New Testament accounts. And they were asleep, these guards, while these dejected, depressed little disciples rolled away this massive stone. Some sleep. I wish I could sleep that way. But his enemies denying the truth in this way actually foster the truth, do they not? What a desperate attempt to do away with the resurrection and its implications. They are like children with their hands caught in the cookie jar with a bite out of one and crumbs on their shirt saying, no, we really, we really didn't eat the cookie. They're caught, and all they know to do is lie about it. What should they have done? They should have done what we should do, to fall upon our faces within our hearts and to say, my Lord and my God, you actually fulfilled the word that you promised. You have been raised from the dead. But the whole account shows the full and complete apostasy of Israel from the Lord. The next thing we see, the fifth thing, Christ meets his disciples. Look at verses 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. What a contrast. The guards fraudulently deny the resurrection. The chief priests deny it, but the eleven obey Jesus and go to Galilee. They saw him, and they worshipped him, though there were some others who doubted. The scripture tells us that this is so often the case. Maybe he just means that it took some of them some time to really believe Jesus standing right before their eyes. But let me say this, something must be done by God in order to affirm the truth of the resurrection of Jesus to the saving of the soul. Something must be done by God. I remember hearing that great pastor in Dallas, Texas, W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. I remember hearing him say that he was on an airplane once. This gentleman came by and said, are you W.A. Chris Woolley? He said, I am. May I sit with you? Why, of course. 
He sat next to Dr. Criswell. And as they traveled on the aircraft, this man began to unpack for Dr. Criswell his life story. He said, you know, I went to one of these seminaries that taught me the documentary hypothesis and that I wasn't to believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that the miracles didn't happen and that Jesus did not rise from the dead. Isn't it true, people of God, that the enemies of the church, the worst enemies, are not out there but in here? It really is. This is what he was taught. One of the most prestigious seminaries in the country, high academic degrees, And then he went to the largest church in his communion, and there he became associate pastor, leading the people of God to worship a Jesus that he believed was dead and in a grave. Then he said to Dr. Criswell, you know, something happened to me. I was serving communion one morning, and I took the bread and I took the fruit of the vine. And as I took the bread, I began to realize I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. And as I took the cup... I began to realize Jesus really did rise from the dead. He really was alive. The Holy Spirit converted that man right there on the spot. He resigned his position, and he began to preach the truth. And he said to Dr. Criswell, I have a small band of believers in a storefront, and I go from house to house knocking on the door telling people about Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He looked at him with a penetrating eye. Imagine me with that history preaching Jesus Christ risen from the dead. My friend, you can actually believe historically that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and still be a lost man or woman or child. The Holy Spirit must do something in the heart for you to believe on Christ savingly. And God is on the throne, not man, and he is still regenerating sinners and saving the lost. The New Testament is clear that Jesus was seen by the disciples, by Peter, the Lord's brother, by over 500 people at one time and later by the Apostle Paul. And this is one of those resurrection appearances here in Matthew. Now pause for a moment. The great question of the ages has been, who can roll away the stone? The great question of the ages is, what about death? Can anyone remove death? Is there any way that death can be conquered? Is there any way that death can be overcome? Who, what can defeat death? Have you never had that thought as you lie upon your bed at midnight and you hear your heart pounding and realize the time will come in which it will beat no more? The strength of sin is the law, the soul that sinneth it shall die. The wages of sin is death. It is the great reality of life. Turn to philosophy, philosophy cannot remove it. Turn to Buddha, Buddha cannot remove it. Turn to Mohammed, Mohammed is in a grave. Turn to religion, religion cannot remove it. Morality and ethics cannot remove it. Political structures cannot remove it. Are you living with fear in your heart as you look toward death? The angel's message and Jesus' message to the women is do not be afraid. Trust in him and do not be afraid because death and Jesus cannot coexist. A missionary once was was teaching in a classroom setting the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There was a Chinese student there who said, I'd like to have a Bible. They gave him a Bible. And this brilliant young Chinese scholar took his Bible home. This is what he said. I took the New Testament home with me. 
I sat down on the floor and read it through before I did anything else. So eager, he read through the New Testament in one sitting because he wanted answers. I've read the great writings of Confucius. I've wanted to satisfy my hunger, hungry heart there. I knocked at the door, but no answer came, for Confucius was dead. I read the message of Buddhism, seeking that for which my soul so profoundly longed. I knocked at the door of Buddha, but no answer came, for Buddha was dead. I read the Quran. My soul longed to find peace there. I knocked at the door, but no answer came, for Muhammad was dead. I read the writings of the greatest patriots and religious leaders of the past. I knocked, but no answer came. While reading this New Testament, I found that it claimed its author to be alive. I knocked at that door. I found the living Christ. He came into my soul. Here my hungry heart found peace, a peace for which... It has longed. My friend, there is no other answer to your sin need, the removal of your guilt, but Jesus Christ who bled on a cross and who rose from the dead, who calls you to put your faith in him. And so these women met the living Lord Jesus Christ. His voice comes to the spiritually dead and raises them even now. And his voice will pierce the chaos at the end of the age when he returns at the last day to judge the quick and the dead. And his people will rise in glorified bodies. Why? How? Because Jesus Christ, our head, rose bodily from the tomb. We see one more thing. The sixth thing. This risen Christ commissions his church. Now we'll say more about that next week, but I want you to see its connection with the whole passage. You must admit, there's no greater news than this. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. All right, what are we his people to do with the message that Jesus rose from the tomb? Jesus says in verse 18 and following, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you notice the alls of this passage? All authority, all nations, all things, and Literally, in the Greek, all the days. He says, you are to recognize my absolute authority as the mediator over all things, men, and nations. That I hold the reins of the universe in my hands. You are to recognize that as you go in my authority, all nations are my province, every one of them. Because of his authority, the church disciples men and women and children everywhere. You are to teach those who come to know me all things that I have commanded, and you are to pass them on, and what we learn must be acted upon. And the commission is buttressed by this comprehensive promise that the Lord will be with us, pasas tas hemeras, all the days it says in the Greek text, or perhaps could be translated, the whole of every day 
even to the end of the age. We are moving quickly to the consummation, and we have the promise of Christ's presence with his people. So in view of the resurrection, we are to take the gospel to the nations. And are you not glad that the commission ends with a promise that he is with us even to the end of the age? No wonder Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now my unbelieving friend sitting here this morning, open your heart and hear the words of this minister. Hear the word of God through this minister. We've been looking at the greatest event in history, one of many accounts in the New Testament. The very first sermon preached after Jesus' resurrection was by Peter, Peter who had denied him, Peter who had not believed in the resurrection. But Jesus showed himself to Peter, and now having seen him, talked with him, having eaten with Peter, the Lord Jesus, Peter now preaches, God raised him up, loosed from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter would give his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Tradition, probably historical, tells us crucified upside down. Now that's the foundation of the Christian faith. That's the foundation. If you don't like it, you don't believe it, at least don't attempt to change the Christian faith into something that it's not. As many for years have been attempting to do, if we just follow Jesus' teachings, we're Christians. That's not true. It's nonsense. The Christian faith is based on the affirmation that Jesus rose bodily from the tomb and that his teaching is nothing without his resurrection from the dead. So here we are. Here's the stark issue. Naturalism or supernaturalism? Naturalism or supernaturalism? Either Jesus rose from the dead and is who he said he is, or you hold to your naturalistic presuppositions, you deny it, and since he is who he said he is, you meet him in the judgment. The New Testament says he rose again. And while in that tomb, at the appointed time, his heart was healed of the spear wound, his heart began to beat, his blood began to flow, his soul was once again united with his body, the Holy Spirit transformed his body, and the God-man lived, literally, truly, materially, came to life. And I believe with all my heart that you cannot explain the New Testament narratives on the basis of naturalism, and that the only explanation of the New Testament narratives regarding the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that they are what they say they are. And there's more. The New Testament narratives speak to the deepest need of your heart on which eternity is written because you and I are rebels against God and you and I need the good news of a Savior raised from the dead who can remove our guilt and meet the deep-seated fear of death that is found in fallen humanity. E.J. Bicknell said, The resurrection was God's public attestation of the claims of the crucified. The resurrection was the amen of the Father to the it is finished of the Son. What is the resurrection? It is the amen of the Father to the it is finished, it is done, atonement is made on the cross. The resurrection means... 
that the sacrifice has been accepted. The resurrection means that the debt has been paid. The resurrection means that for those who trust in him, you owe nothing to the law of God and you are not condemned. It means his claims are sealed and that his people shall be raised. Ask yourself the question, is wrong and evil and death to triumph forever? No. Jesus triumphed over death. Jesus triumphed over evil. Jesus triumphed over wrong. Jesus triumphed over all that is ugly and contrary to what it means that God is God and that we are created in His image. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be enabled to say with Job of old, I know, not just a maybe, yeah, I kind of think maybe, I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though the worms destroy this body, yet with my eye shall I see God. And you will be able to sing our final hymn. Death, death cannot keep his prey. Pay attention to those words. Death cannot keep his prey. Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. God's people said, Amen.